The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the first one in a series of episodes where I did a collaboration with the Panoptic podcast and with that we covered a lot of topics. I definitely brought in a lot related to the things we've been discussing and this introduction to season two and these concepts of comparing the Reformation to modern times, these types of things. But with it being a collaboration, we also went into to some other things that are more relevant for their show, and the topics are still directly relevant to uh, this show, Our Foundations, as well. Um, but I did branch out a little more than normal in comparison to these other interviews that I've done, and also I probably did talk a lot more than I normally do in these interviews because they wanted the extra content and my input for uh, their benefit and their listeners' benefit as well. It wasn't just me doing an interview and asking a few questions and them doing all the talking, we kind of shared that. So that's what to expect. This will be, like I said, the very first episode in a series. I believe there will be four. Um, I haven't broken them all up exactly yet, but it was a very long discussion that we had. And so I'll break it up into many parts and we will go from there. So after roughly an hour or a little less, I'll go ahead and stop this segment at a good cutoff time and we can pick up with the next segment after that next week. So please enjoy. You want me to go ahead and just do my introduction? We'll get on with it. Yeah, Josh, how you doing? I'm doing good. Um, my name is Joshua, and I am the host for the Our Foundations podcast. Uh, my podcast focuses roughly on a survey of the evolution of society as a whole, and I focus on the systems within our society. So for season one, I looked at our governmental and monetary and education systems and things like political theory and economics, that kind of stuff, and how those started, how they evolved, some corruptions along the way, and some of the issues with what's going on today, as well as some alternative movements like blockchain and homeschooling and things like this. And so that was season one. And now I'm introducing season two, which will be another look at the evolution of society. But I'm using a historical parallel of the time of the Reformation and the printing press and the historic church. And I'm comparing that to modern times with modern anti-establishment movements and the nation state, which now uh, fills a lot of the roles that the church did, and the internet that obviously has a lot of parallels with the printing press. And so I'm bringing on some other podcast hosts and experts 
that are coming on and introducing a lot of these ideas, giving a lot of context and background and fleshing out some of these ideas. And then for the rest of the season two of my podcast, I'll be going deep into one parallel at a time and really fleshing out what we can draw from these parallels and what that shows us about what's going on today, helps us to better understand different trends and movements, and uh, gives us a look into the future of possibly how these things will play out and what types of trends and signs to look for. All right. That sounds really interesting. Jason, uh, do you want to let the, the listeners know a little bit about uh, our yeah, podcast? Let's do that. Yeah, that, that was super fascinating. So this is actually our first time collaborating with any uh, other podcast being on anyone else's show. Um, so thank you, Joshua, for actually uh, uh, allowing us to make this a shared episode, because I think we're going to be covering issues that are interesting to both of our audiences. Yeah, I think so. So uh, who are we? Uh, my name's Jason. I'm a consultant. I focus on strategic communications and change management and our co-host. My name's uh, Juan Pablo, uh, Jason's co-host, friend, uh, partner in crime. I am doing a PhD in modern thought and literature at Stanford University and uh, love doing this podcast with Jason where we talk about communications, media, power, uh, and how they, you know, and, and how it affects practical everyday life. Yeah. So what is panoptic? Essentially, the, the core theme of our podcast is conversations between a critical theorist and a management consultant. And uh, we find that there are some interesting intersections between our respective lines of work. And we've been having these conversations for years. And we thought maybe we could continue to explore these intersections uh, in a way that others might find yeah. uh, useful. So as Juan said, we, we try to relate theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues yeah. and everyday life. That's, that's, so, that's definitely um, right. And it's a work in progress still. Our aim is, as Panoptic, is to bring together academic and technical discourses that have to do with communications and power um, and philosophy and bring them into context where we can really apply them in a one way or another and maybe even translate it into a language that hopefully is accessible so i think in some ways uh we're, i'm interested to see you know josh thanks for the invitation to chat with you and yeah. uh you know some of the stuff you touch upon is stuff that i think we have a perspective um a communications media power perspective that we might bring to the table. So I'm curious to see um, how our interests link up. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that what you guys do and the types of things you talk about do have a very direct correlation with, I guess, probably the later half of um, this upcoming season in my podcast, where I start talking about the future and the trends that are going on and how technology impacts all these things. It'll be uh, some similar things with philosophy and technology and corporate influence and media and media literacy, all these types of things, which I have heard you guys talk about on your show. So I think we've got a lot of good connections there. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting started. You know, let's, how do you, um, I know you had some questions for us or some some frameworks that you wanted to approach this conversation with. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, what I am doing for my show in this season is doing this parallel between the Reformation time and now 
and I will be interjecting probably some ideas throughout the show, and I think probably near the end of this episode, I'll um, maybe go into those in a little more detail, and we'll get a little more future-oriented. But before that, I did want to start with some of the things that you guys have introduced on your show before, but basically kind of what's going on right now, and how... How are we shifting as a society? There's this thing that is known as this fourth industrial revolution, and there's a lot of things associated with that. And could you introduce kind of that idea and how that influences and impacts our society today? Sounds great, Joshua. Juan, should I, can I take this? Yeah, go ahead. So one interpretation of our modern reality is that, as you said, Joshua, we're entering a kind of fourth industrial revolution And that's characterized by big data, automation, and from a certain perspective, surveillance technologies. And as part of this revolution, we see the expansion of corporate influence through technology and evolving relationships between the state and corporate actors. And these things have distinct sociopolitical discursive effects. So effects on our conversations and knowledge and learning. So as part of this uh, collaboration between uh, Panoptic and our foundations, we wanted to discuss changing constellations of power, communication, and technology uh, throughout European European history and their impacts to the experience of agency in the modern world. So I I think we can discuss these artifacts both independently and collectively, and we can uh, also discuss how they might parallel or run against certain uh, ancient knowledge that... uh, you've covered on quite a bit of uh, your episodes, Joshua. So my sense is that we might agree on on a lot of stuff uh, on the historical analysis, but uh, we might disagree on some of the political analysis and prescriptions. Yeah, hopefully so. That'll make it interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. So I'm not sure I have a very compelling answer to what we should make of these changing constellations of power, but I think we can have you know, again, uh, an interesting conversation here nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Well, to begin with, you mentioned these shifts in power and how the corporate world and governmental world, um, things are shifting within those and the roles that they play in our society. And I I have covered this before and uh, talked about some of these things, such as the influence through censorship. Uh, Technology companies are mainly the gatekeepers of information for society as a whole today, especially social media companies and Google for a search company, but all these companies that deal with, like you said, big data, and they have a huge impact. And part of that is being these gatekeepers and through censorship and uh, deciding what information is out there and what is promoted, as well as using all that data they collect for marketing and for propaganda. And you have this not only with uh, big tech and these big data companies, social media companies, but you also see it in the media with that's where we get most of our news. And the majority of the mainstream news networks are all owned by just a couple corporations, international corporations that own pretty much every mainstream news outlet. So that's a lot of power to be held. And I've heard some newscasters talk about this before that when they go on to present the news, there is this basically sheet of paper. It's like an outline for the previous day's top headlines and the top stories. And I've heard some uh, announcers actually say in interviews that that's where they draw a lot of what they talk about on their respective shows and on these news outlets. And so that is a 
it's definitely something where you have a lot of influence and a lot of power. Whoever is creating these rough outlines and these summaries, they're, in a sense, choosing what stories get played and what stories get discussed and how that is presented to the public. And so, of course, you can have a very dystopian and conspiracy-oriented um, outlooks on this, or you can just say that maybe it's just a little too much power in the hands of few. And so there, there's definitely an influence there. But the point is that it's big tech, it's the media, and then you also have corporations as a whole. And oftentimes, they project their influence through foundations. That's been something that I've talked about multiple times on my show with, especially with like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment. Um, You have things like the Gates Foundation and Ford Foundation. They have a lot of influence on society through these nonprofit organizations. And when they do this, they do a lot of good. They do a lot of good things for society. They donate to good causes. And they definitely educate the public in a lot of good ways. However, we do have some congressional investigations in particular, that's kind of more hard fact, I'll stick to that, that have shown that these nonprofit foundations have made attempts and at times been successful in having large influences on government and on society through these interactions that they have with the university system, for example, with the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations and things like this. So you have these corporations that are not necessarily affecting society in that form of being a corporation, but they have this other branch that's a foundation, that's something separate. It's not looked on with as much scrutiny as the corporation is. And uh, a lot of times they do a lot of things, some of them good, some of them bad. And a lot of it depends on your perspective, but it does have a big influence on society. And then probably the last way I can think of would be that corporations influence society just through being employers. You have the employer-employee relationship, and a lot of that is being disrupted in this um, upcoming gig economy. And so that's definitely a factor there as well. But the point is that you have this corporate influence that affects all these different areas and all these different ways. And these are ways that might not have really existed historically. But now that we have this new technology and the internet and this 24-7 news cycle, it, it, it's a big deal. And it's not only society, but it's government as well through campaign contributions and offering ex-politicians board seats on their companies and getting people on their board to get political seats in government and lobbyists that are a lot of times writing legislation themselves because they're the experts. So uh, from one perspective, they're the right people to write it. They're in the industry. They know what's going on. They have the information. But from another perspective, their incentives might be a little off from what many in the public would wish for. But you also have government contracts where you have government money flowing to corporations. You've got public-private partnerships, which are very similar. And so just overall, we see that corporations today have a very big impact on society. They have a very big impact on government. And there are just many different ways that these dynamics play out and that these Uh, really, yeah, these power dynamics that exist between corporations and us. And I think that's something that is very important to to flesh out, to understand, to try to figure out, and um, ideally to be aware of both the pros and the cons of all this. Interesting. Well, I propose 
let's study some of these shifts in kind of the fourth industrial revolution period. Uh, but maybe one way we can set the context for kind of going, doing a deeper dive into all this is by going back in time a little bit. You know, you're talking about journalism and media. So maybe let's try to understand what did media look like at a, at a certain time? What were the kinds of discursive traditions that maybe we aspire to? And, and then how does that relate to the uh, rise of certain capitalist forces that you're talking about and, and new relationships between the government and the state? And Juan, I know you had a, a lot of interesting uh, perspective to add to this conversation. Yeah, I think it's, you know, responding to the things Joshua is bringing up, it's important, I think, uh, as we try to make parse it out, right? It's uh, it's important to take maybe first a long perspective before we shorten and look at the present, um, because there's all these changes and all these different types of technologies. And, and as you were talking, as, I think as you were doing a good job of summarizing Joshua, there's all, there are all these apparent uh, problems of interests, uh, clashes of interests uh, that are taking place, right, which affect, directly affect people's capacity to access information, make sense of information, and then, um, and also, uh, you talked in one direction, I think, which is the direction of media as they project information and communication out, and also as the other direction, which is how do people's and people's opinion actually get filtered into the system, uh, into the supposedly democratic system, right? In a way that it is a certain sort of democratic process that's the one programming, let's say, policies, rather than uh, powerful interests that might have uh, their own interests at stake that, that might uh, not be the general interest. So to, to take a step back, I would suggest... And I think it's really f helpful as a framing for us to think historically about where you know where we've come from and where we are, particularly in societies in in the Western world. Um, to look at Habermas's notion of the the public sphere and his notion of what it means to be a modern society. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that he's these fr this framing is 100% correct, but I, I think it gives us a, a guideline to to sort of discuss, right? And and it's he, you know, from a historical perspective, he talks about how modernity is characterized by, uh, by you know, the shift from basically community to society. And what does that mean? What does that mean, the shift from community to society? He's looking at things here um, using a sociological set of concepts. And one of the ones that he's focusing on is how uh, people relate to each other discursively through language. This is the primary media that structures communications in, the, in human society. It's this technology, of course, that in a way is very unique to human beings um, and how we use it. But what really characterizes modernity is what he calls the almost the, uh, the differentiation, he calls it, but that's just a fancy word for sort of like the decoupling, the almost like becoming autonomous of what he calls functional subsystems. You know, what are these, sub what, what is he talking about? The market and the administrative state. Now, and what happens, according to Habermas, is these are sort of disconnected from that 
discursive realm where people sort of talk face to face and make decisions about, you know, what the world is like, uh, make arguments about what's right, you know, what the world is like, uh, what it's like, what's what it's what's the right way to interact, and, and what they're you know what they're thinking or feeling. These subsystems become detached. Uh, and what they have is their own media for regulating action between people. For instance, the market has money. Money is a is a media. If you think about what is money at the end of the day, it's a sort of set of it's a it's a it's a media that has that carries information uh, that can serve logistical ends, and it can also serve to sort of store value. But it also inter- it also through the signals that it sends out, it mediates people's interaction in the market. Uh, on the other hand, you have the state. Now, for, for, for Habermas, unlike, let's say, I think a lot of libertarian thinkers, uh, these things are not sort of like, they don't, you can't have one without the other. You have uh, the rise of the market is the rise of the administrative state. It's the rise of a centralized territorial state that... Uh, that relies on that relies on taxation in order to recoup revenues, to have a professional standing army to control that territory, um, the, and and it's, he, we're talking here about a specific historical moment in European history uh, in the 18th century, where what used to be a bunch of sort of uh, more or less, to an extent, decentralized territorial units uh, and alliances between feudal lords and so forth slowly start melt you know merging into these large modern nation states uh according to Habermas. so that gives us a framework and and we could talk more we could get more into the weeds about what what his actually historical narrative of how this happens is uh, which i think is more detailed it has to do with things like the rise of banking and commercial commerce in in the italian uh city-states in the renaissance uh the way that this reshaped governance and so forth and i can go into that in a little bit but this this way of thinking which by the way you could also think about about the way it's codified in the law the way our modern system of law works it our positive system of law that means enacted law past law right it is it works in in it has two main divisions it has private law which is the law of what you're basically what your rights are as a as an individual right what your rights are vis-a-vis the government against you know vis-a-vis other people what they cannot do to you what the government can't do to you what you can do with your property etc and then civil law public law the law that's about access to the political system access in terms of civil rights um, and so forth and this in a sense maps on into our, the structure of our constitutional system you have a legislative branch, which is supposed to be the only branch that creates law. You have the executive branch, which is supposed to apply law, of course. And we all know this. This is kind of basic civics 101. But I think it's interesting to link it to how our, how our judicial system is, is sort of, sorry, sorry our, leg, our legal system is set up. And to how, uh, and, and Havermas' claims about differentiation. And we have our judicial system, which is supposed to review law. It's supposed to review the application of law. Does the, is the law applied correctly in this specific case? Uh, now, what the flow that's supposed to take place, ideally, or that was sort of imagined in this sort of classic 
you know, what, what Habermas calls the classic bourgeois public sphere. And this is from, a, you know, one of his early books. It's called The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere. He talks about how with the rise of the public sphere, which is, was the sphere of private citizens that belonged not to the state and not to the official market, but between and who interacted uh, discursively in, in venues like coffee houses, salon, uh, salons, that uh, through uh, epistolary practices, so letter writing, and through the press, through writing in the, in the press. But this, this was a, a press that had not yet been completely commercialized. So, you know, little presses where they would basically write their opinions, they would critique government actions. And what's really crucial for Habermas is the way this, this, this fear sort of of civil society, the public sphere, was supposed to, in a way, uh, because it had arisen, because it was because what the administrative state did uh, affected them directly as private citizens, people who acted in the market, which was mediated by money, the regulations of the state affected them. Therefore, they saw it necessary to create mechanisms to, in a way, control the state, to say, to say, hey, whatever you do affects us as private citizens. Your public legislation affects us. So the mechanisms that we understand as part of civil society, free speech, free assembly, uh, eventually, legis- you know, sort of representative legislative branch that is supposed to be the carrier of public opinion and turn that, transform that public opinion into law, that programs that basically administration, basically the rules that manage the market at large, which is, which if you, you know, it's really, a, it's a paradox. It's, the sphere of private action that's supposed to be regulated by money, it's supposed to be self-regulating. But the state has to sort of create certain conditions for it to work. So this flow of public, of sort of communic- of sort of uh, opinion is supposed to go from the public sphere to the legislative branch and then to the executive as, as applying sort of basically this public will, right? So this is sort of like the classic idea of the public sphere. Now, what happens is, according to Habermas, to an extent, is that, and we could, we, I think we could argue whether this is the right, uh, whether this historical re- recounting is correct, is that with as the market sort of became more powerful, as it grew, as it became more consolidated, one of the elements that took place was the sort of expansion into the cultural realm, the turning into commodities of things like press, of things like culture, so that the realm of culture, which was the realm of where the bourgeois, as as Harvard Moss calls them, the middle classes, basically, which were which were acting critically in the public sphere and engaging or developing their subjectivity, their personhood through interaction in in the discursive and literary spheres. These became basically uh, new spheres of sort of commodity and industrial production. These goods, like the press became, uh, I mean, to put it in a sort of a pithy, a pithy phrase, the right to freedom of the press became the right to buy a press. Uh, something goes to, with what you're talking about, Joshua. So now you had these big consortiums that bought uh, press, and it, it was no longer clear um, what was being transmit, transmitted by the press. Was it critical uh, individual citizens' critical perspectives, or was it advertising in in cloak right in 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 sheep's clothing 
Second, in second, in a secondary sense, for Habermas, what other other also happens, which to him is intrinsic to to the system of rights uh, as it exists, the sort of liberal democratic system of rights which we inherit from the Enlightenment tradition, is the the that tension between private law and civil law, between private interest and the general public interest, already presages the rise of an administrative state. Why? The market's tendency towards monopolies, towards affecting the political system calls for a reaction by the political system to sort of bound the market through the rise of the administrative state. And as workers' movements, feminist movements, and so forth enter that public sphere, they start clamoring for uh, what are called more material rights. So things, you know, what is very much associated with uh, what we would call the rise of the administrative state or the welfare state. Things like transfer and tax programs that are about giving people health care, giving people worker certain rights, you know, the weekend, 40-hour work week, uh, and so forth. We could go into detail of that. So this, this media theoretical perspective about how people in their everyday life interact in what's called a sort of a life world, a discursively elaborated world where people talk in using language and they're talking, they're making arguments uh, based on language and based on what Habermas calls validity claims, what's right, what's wrong. This is supposed to, ideally, the, the transfer of public opinion, which is in a way uh, being formed and inter in interaction with the media, with the mass media, at the, you know, in, in, shortly after that period of the, of the classic bourgeois public sphere, you know, the mass press and so forth, and later it would be TV, radio, etc. Now it's even more complicated, we'll get there. But that public opinion is supposed to transfer and and on not only for elections, but also through through the media itself, into a kind of through representatives in the legislative in the legislative branch, it's supposed to program the administrate the administrative branch, and it's supposed to program um, that kind of regulation of the market and so forth. But again, if the media uh, if it's ambiguous whether the media is advertising in cheap clothing and it's simply a sort of registering strategic actions by groups that only are haggling for material interests uh, rather than sort of discursively figuring out what's best in the general interest, these are, these, we can see these as sort of like short circuits of this flow of communication where on the one hand you have law as being the media that sort of regulates the administrative and, and power and the regulation of power who gets power how they how they wield it law is supposed to neutralize it right um, money is supposed to be the one that in the pub, private sphere in this model regulates our private interactions my let's say my interactions uh, in the market in terms of my my private interests uh, so there's all these tensions there in this in the way that in the way that this uh in the way that this, if we think about it from that media theoretical perspective, in the way that these specific media, language, law, and and money, frame human interactions in different contexts, whether it's through whether it's access to power, whether it's deciding what's best for everybody, or whether it's um, acting in your own self-interest, right? So that's where that's where, in a sense, we come from. Um, you know, I think it gets even more complex if we start talking about what is happening to governance today when we start bringing into the picture, as we will in a little bit, things like algorithms, data, uh, but also what's happened to the market since the time of, let's say, that 
of the quote-unquote classic bourgeois public sphere um, and how, how the, the systems of, of the law have had to react to that and how the administrative state has changed in relation to that. And Juan, can you tell us where Habermas's concept of strategic action fits into all of this? Because I think yeah, that's a good question. strategic action is kind of central to one of the core themes of where this uh, historiographical analysis could go. Yeah, that's a really good question and helps me, I think, make uh, hopefully define these ideas a little more exactly. So in the in our everyday life, you know, in our sort of everyday face-to-face life, according to Habermas, because we're interacting using language, we have to, we're forced in a way, or we, we ultimately make assumptions which are, if we have to agree about anything, we're using communicative, what he calls communicative action. In our everyday discussion, we are making validity claims, which, which in three different spheres, according to him, and the sphere of what the world is like, like, and, you know, we've talked a lot about this a lot in our podcast, Jason, but what the world is like, you know, if I tell you, hey, the sky's blue, you know, you could check that. And if I, was, if I were wrong, you could look at it and say, hey, that's wrong or whatever, right? Uh, that's one sphere. The social normative sphere, what's right, what's the right thing to do, what's okay, what's not okay, what's considered wrong, right? And, and, the, and the sort of aesthetic, personal, subjective sphere, so... Things that I, as I as an individual am privy to, my thoughts, my ideas, my feelings, my my goals, my interests, which I could lie about, but over time, my actions would in a way reveal, right? So two of these fears are basically a third, a second and third person can check when I, when I say something about the world or about the social world and they can argue about my validity claims. So that discursive realm is basically about you know, it's very much intrinsically tied to argumentation and to validity claims. Let's just set that aside. So it's a communicative realm, according to Habermas. Whereas the market and the way it's set up in our modern system, the market is regulated by money, right? When, when, when the, with the downfall of, of the aristocracies, the old regime in Europe, the feudal classes and so forth, the rise of, of the middle classes of capitalism, modern-day capitalism, the institutionalization of that regime into law, into, into positive law, we have a, in a system of rights that if you, I mean, if you think about it, that's what we have, a system of rights, of private rights and civil rights. Those private rights set aside property as a sphere of action that is not to be regulated by the government, but to be regulated by money. It's supposed to be a self-regulating system. That's money. It's supposed to regulate strategic action. This is not action that's regulated by argumentation about what's right, what the world is actually like, what is actually okay, and what I actually believe. It's a strategic realm where we as actors are competing against each other for private gain in the form of which is monet, which is measured in the form of profit. Um, in the in the interact in the interaction of goods and services, right? So if you, that's a strategic realm. Money is a media that doesn't that gives you information that's useful in strategic action, not in communicative action. We're not coming to an agreement through money about two things that we can actually agree on together and say, you know what, I agree with your reasons and your validity and your claims that you're making. Money is not like that. Money isn't an information uh, processing media 
that it's not about whether we agree or something. It gives me signals for how I can act strategically. But money, again, neutralizes it within a, in a framework that is legally acceptable in the modern context. Um, that is the difference between, I think, strategic action for, for Habermas and communicative action. Uh, one is about us, let's say, coordinating a set of actions based on a mutual agreement. And one is about, uh, in the market specifically, for instance, uh, let's say getting more profit than the competition through reading those signals correctly. Uh, it's not about sort of coming to an agreement with people about something that we, it's not about coordinating actions based on some set of sh shared values or interests. It's about me carrying out actions in my private interest uh, in this neutralized realm which is detached from linguistic and discursive communications and in a sense from value evaluations from values judgments from normative claims about what's right and wrong of course then that's why inevitably you'll, you're going to get something like a like an administrative state that in a way is supposed is supposed to bound regulate the market to an extent in order to in order to defend or in, in a sense balance private interest and public interest Right. This, these are the two traditions, in a way that you could say you could say that these are the two traditions that are that we are. In a, it's still very much acting within the Republican tradition, and I'm not saying Republican in the U.S. sense. I'm, so, I'm talking about Republican in the Rousseau in Rousseau sense, uh, the tradition that thinks of the political community as coming to know itself through the through the political system uh, as a community, sort of. Uh, the majority coming to power and and having a public ethos, and the liberal, which is the liberal tradition, which is about defending the rights of individuals, civil rights. I'm sorry, defending the rights of individuals, human rights, um, autonomy, freedom of speech, and so forth, and 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 defending that in the political system. So you see how these are at tension, right? Um, creating creating both a system that allows for for, for uh, private individuals to have a sense a sort of realm of autonomy that is to an extent detached from making a decision about what we all agree about in terms of values, and then the kind of political will formation of voting and deciding what we think is best for society and the public interest. So our law very much carries and is, in a sense, harbors this tension within it in, the, in those settings. So it's strategic action, Jason, I think, uh, is non-discursive action. It's it's actually where I'm trying to get you to do something, or I'm trying to I'm trying to get a reaction or an effect, but not because I convince you linguistically or discursively that that's the case, but because basically because I'm actually strategically right. I'm trying to get an effect. I'm not trying to get an agreement. Uh, money in the realm of money in the market is very much a strategic realm. It's not about trying to get people's agreements. It's about trying to understand and read the signals in order to get a leg up. Uh, if you're a firm, for instance, or if you're a consumer trying to get a good deal, right? Right. So, so you and I might differ still a little bit on what we think we can do if we can right. do anything good or, <laughs> or or not with strategic action or strategic communication. We've actually done quite a bit of episodes on this. I wanted to give Joshua's yep. audience just like a taste of kind of maybe where we disagree on this, and I also think kind of digging into this sure. concept of strategic action will be useful as we start looking at what the uh, markets are doing the modern markets are doing with strategic action today in kind of the no. in the like the contracting sphere and also in the big tech sphere um 
As a practitioner of strategic action or communication, strategic communication uh, myself, kind of within the context of the firm, um, when I think about strategic action or communication in the applied sense, I'm thinking about communicating with intent to influence beliefs, attitudes, uh, and or behaviors. Um, and this might this is distinct from what Habermas is talking about in some ways. Um, I don't yeah. think about it in the applied sense as um, distinctly tied to a media of money, although um, that's certainly an interesting and, and useful perspective. That's just, yeah. and I would, let me clarify, Jason, before I let you go on. So that would sure. just be one realm of strategic action, which is mediated by money, but that's not, you know, that's not the only form of strategic action, nor the only, nor is money the only way that strategic action manifests itself. Got it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think from Habermas' standpoint, communicative action, as you articulated, it's kind of this collaboration with others to increase understanding. There's mutual deliberation and argumentation that's happening. Um, you know, in, in previous episodes, we likened this to kind of like an ideal form of the Socratic method. Um, but on the other hand, strategic action is like secretive and, and hyper individualistic, and it seeks to hide or distort the truth to affect outcomes. And, you know, even after endlessly debating the ethics of strategic communication with Yuan, uh, I'm not not ready to die on the hill for Habermas, but um, I, I thought I'd offer some bullets from our debate, and then I can let uh, both of you comment if you have any thoughts. Um, sure. So I want to suggest that it's very difficult to draw a fine line between communicative and strategic action in the real world. You know, as we see in Plato's Republic, on the surface, Socrates, he engages in open deliberation and argumentation with his peers, and he's trying to unveil the true nature of justice. But upon closer inspection, an alternative view of Socrates' behavior is that he is playing with the emotions of the, the one vulnerable Thrasymachus. And Socrates, he, he flaunts his superior intelligence, he cross-examines his fellow interlocutors into oblivion, and he takes great pleasure in the whole ordeal. So this wasn't communicative action when I think of what that means. It's... Um, you know, it's not that completely it was there is a lot of ego and power and selfishness involved in this process mm -hmm. so according to this alternative view socrates was acting strategically and that brings me to a second point so even when we feel that we are acting altruistically at any given moment we can conceive of selfish motivations and utilitarian outcomes existing in superposition to our attempted altruism so basically when i give the homeless person five dollars or stand on the bus so, do, so the uh, elderly veteran can sit down, I get a dopamine boost and I give myself a pat on the back for being such a good person. Um, I, I gather our, our communication is probably subject to the same physics, but you know, think about how do we build relationships, partly by connecting, relating, and empathizing with others through communication. And what do relationships do for us? Well, they pay emotional and tangible dividends they can help us get through difficult times. Sometimes they even pay the rent or our medical expenses when we cannot. So we may not expect these dividends, but we receive them nonetheless. My suggestion is that we could observe any average social interaction and identify semblances of strategy operating behind the scenes. And I have two more points. So next one, strategy is necessary to build relationships and increase mutual gain. So look no further than the negotiation literature. It's no coincidence that within that literature, you're going to find that people are in a state of perpetual negotiation. And negotiation can be scary, intimidating, and mistrusting. 
Uh, we often don't believe that others want what is best for us. And at some level, we may even view our friends and family through the same lens. So how do we cut through the fear and suspicion to get what we want, not just the one negotiator, but all negotiators? And how do we maximize mutual gain and, and, and mutual understanding in a situation where either party is not willing to engage in good faith, you know, to hear you honestly? So whether you take the rational Harvard approach, which is codified in, in the book Getting to Yes, or Chris Voss's psychological approach in the book Never Split the Difference, and we, we talked about those two approaches in one of our episodes, you know, thoughtful strategy is absolutely essential to achieving your goals and building lasting, valuable relationships. So we can dig into that if we want. But um, first, to wrap this up, uh, very often effective strategy involves level setting and being transparent about your interests and goals and appealing to objective criteria. And these strategic recommendations can easily be mistaken for communicative actions in the Habermasian sense. But to my eye, they are still strategic insofar as they seek to affect utilitarian outcomes in practice. So in this way, communicative action itself can, I'd submit, at least function as a kind of strategy. So what are the key takeaways here for me? Uh, I don't believe we can clearly distinguish communicative and strategic acts. Everyday social interactions exude strategy, and strategy is oftentimes good for us. Um, okay, but here's what I'm willing to concede. When we look at advertising and social engineering, especially in the age of big tech, those types of things, you know, artifacts of modern capitalism, strategic action becomes visibly problematic. And that's where I'll, I'll yeah. pause. Yeah, and, and I think you're, I think you make some good points, Jason, because uh, I think if we translate this to what, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of what are the systems that regulate our interactions and then we can get to i think updating and get to the point to the modern point which i think i'm sure josh was anxious to do as well yeah yeah i've actually got some comments to make on uh the historical front paralleling yeah. now um based off of some of the things you said Juan, when you yeah. were talking about um banking and the role of money, something that stuck yeah. in my head is that the parallel that I draw is the rise of the merchant banking class, like the Medici is the prime example here. And they kind of rose to power prior to the Renaissance and in many ways inspired and initiated the Renaissance. They funded a lot of the artists, a lot of the painters and poets and different people, and a lot of them stayed within the plaza of the Medici, within their household, so to say, and they conversed there. They had discourses. They all talked about different intellectual ideas. They shared their art together. And this is the picture that you're painting with this kind of ideal public discourse that you're talking about ideas. You have disagreements, but you discuss them. You try to come to a conclusion as a community. You build relationships. And we did see that happen then. And the parallel that I make to the Medici in modern times would be the rise of big tech. So both the merchant bankers and big tech today, they rely on building networks. They rely on information. And it really doesn't matter about a specific product. The Medici were involved in many different types of goods and services. Banking was the primary, but they got into a lot of different things. And I think the same is true with big tech. They have the networks behind the scenes. They use the data in many different ways, and they can be involved in many different industries. And when we see 
the public discourse that occurs today, there is a similarity there where just like at that period in time, there was a big influence by the Medici and some people uh, similar to them. We see the same thing with big tech today in that we have the internet and these social media companies, and many of those are who we would include in this category of big tech. And that's where a lot of the public discourse, so to say, is occurring today. A lot of it's occurring on the internet and through different online platforms and things like this. And so uh, also mentioned was back to the time of Plato and Socrates. And at that point in time, you had the Academy. And the whole point of the Academy, Plato's Academy, was to have discourse. That was kind of their whole method of learning and of interacting together. And then when you jump ahead to the times prior and after the Reformation, you have the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period, we do see this rise of the bourgeois public sphere that um, Habermas talks about. And this was something that it wasn't necessarily the prime intent and purpose of these people meeting up. They would just meet up in coffee shops and in local places. They would get together. They would have this discourse. And they were private citizens having discourse and getting together, building relationships. But that wasn't their primary goal in life. They didn't wake up in the morning, go specifically to one place, have these discourses all day, and that's what they did. It was something that was kind of on the side, um, but it was very important and very effective. I know Habermas many times says that that is the key to having a truly successful democracy. You have to have this open public discourse. Well, when you jump into modern times, this discourse, like I mentioned, that occurs online is one that's not even just a side issue. It's more of an entertainment venue. And people do have some legitimate discourse that actually matters and might be slightly intellectual. But if you look at the broad scope of interaction online through these social media platforms, you're not really getting a whole lot of intellectual conversation. And so that's one of the hesitations I have And one of the negative attributes I see in today's time is that we do have a lot of these parallels, and we do see a lot of similar movements, but today's movement does have some important differences, and so that's going to have an effect. You mentioned how money was something that was a standard for, um, basically for regulating markets, and it wasn't necessarily how people would come to agreement on something. It wasn't discourse. It wasn't communication. But money played a very important role in building that society and how society changed, and that that was something that was a market force that was outside of the, let's say, the state's sphere. And I I would say that is true, and there are many benefits to having markets. They work very well in many different ways. However, there are also many different ways where markets have failures. But the thing I want to point out now is actually reading a book or listening to an audiobook today, and the guy brought up the point about uh, money. And he talks from a standpoint of... Uh, he's, a, he's an engineer. He was writing in the 20s, and he's the one that coined the term technocracy. And so he's looking from a scientific approach. And he says that scientific instruments that measure things need to be exact. And that's kind of an important thing. You don't have the value of an inch or a foot or a meter changing. That that wouldn't really work out. We live in a scientific age and an age of reason. And so you can't have a standard that is extremely variable and volatile. 
However, when you look at money, that's exactly what it is. So it there are some issues there when you're using money as a medium of making, I guess, regulating systems and regulating markets. There are some issues there, number one, and it's volatility. It's not a set standard that stays the same that you can use as a standardized tool. But also, when you're talking historically, money was something that was independent of the state. You had states that did produce money and coinage and things like this, but they were largely on the gold standard or something similar, where the state didn't completely control the flow of money, how much money was out there, inflation, all these types of things. They didn't really have much of a say in that. And usually when they tried to and they would debase a currency, we see throughout history that that did not have very good effects, that markets crashed and uh, the values declined and there are big issues there. But largely, states were not involved in money the way that they are today. So in today's markets, money does play an important role that is similar to then. But states have complete control over currencies now. We have these fiat currencies that are not based on a gold standard or any standard. Governments can literally create money out of thin air and use that to steer monetary policy. And there are obviously pros and cons to this. But that's another thing that really stood out to me. When you talk about how markets lead to a centralized state, um, I, I, I can see this. And from my perspective, and it's something that um, I heard from someone else, that corporations need a state in order to reach their full potential, truly. Because if a corporation or an actor in a market can have access to the state for regulation, for government contracts, for government funds in general, these types of things, then they can form a monopoly. They can dominate a market. They can keep their competitors out. They can get guaranteed income from a state, from the government. And uh, that is something that is very beneficial if you are a corporation or a player in the market. And so that I, I would definitely say that market players encourage the rise of a centralized state. And I would fully agree with you on that. I would say that if we look at the historical way that this has played out, typically when you see the rise and fall of empires, empires, as they rise and hit their peak, they get more and more centralized. And in doing so, they gain more and more control. They're more and more efficient. There are many benefits to this. But the negative is that we do see time and time again that you see corruption become a bigger and bigger player as these states and empires get more and more centralized and they start instituting more and more control, get more and more strict. There's more and more corruption. And usually that leads to the fall of said empire. And it happens over and over again throughout history. So while I would agree that markets lead to a centralized state for many different reasons, I would also say that a centralized state, as it corrupts, also then leads to a greater focus on the private sphere and on markets, because you have this pendulum swing, you have this reactionary effect that if a state is very centralized with a lot of control, and there is corruption there, they tighten their grip, they take advantage, corporations take advantage of this, markets take advantage of having the state, in a sense, as a tool that they do many in many different ways. And that spurs a reaction from the private sphere, from individuals, from people uh, like many of the anti-establishment movements that are going on today. We do see this, and we do see a reaction that's going on there. Um, 
You've got the Renaissance and the Enlightenment periods where you had this rebirth and learning. You have more of a liberal and multifaceted education with the rise of humanism from scholasticism. And the idea of humanism does parallel with today where there's a bigger focus on the humanities and the STEM fields. This is something that's really getting pushed in today's education system. You also had through the Enlightenment many individualistic ideologies, and that's another thing that is becoming very big in today's world with things like the social media phenomenon where it's all about me. Or you look at the gig economy and it's very individualized and splitting apart from this more collective approach to markets. Um, You had theological debates going on through the Reformation, and that really mirrors the political debates that are going on today. You had the rise of the printing press, just like the rise of the internet and how that technology really influenced all of these different shifts that were going on and in many ways allowed them to happen and push them along. You also have a focus on natural rights, which we hear all the time today about basic human rights. That is a big deal today. Uh, people are, they have a right to healthcare. They have a right to a, a purposeful job. There's all these different things that people have these basic human rights for. And that definitely does parallel the argument for natural rights back in the Enlightenment time. And obviously there are differences in all these examples. But we see all these things. And the other Enlightenment issue would be representative governance, that that was the ideal for a society. And again, that's the big push today. And that's why a lot of people have issues, is that they see the influence that corporations have. They see the corruption in the state, and they do not see a whole lot of representation of their personal views and their personal opinions and the things that other people they talk to care about. And so they don't feel very represented. And that in a way, is helping to fuel this anti-establishment mentality that is going on in today's world. So I'm seeing a lot of parallels here, and we see these trends that happened historically. We see modern trends that are happening as well. But I guess the key takeaway for me is that there are some major differences in that it seems like it was more relational and more intentional when these shifts were going on in historic time periods. We're referencing mainly like the Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment period. And when you look at those same movements and the parallels that are occurring today, they're very similar but they're highly controlled by big tech and the flow of information. They are highly focused on consumerism and entertainment. They are not, uh, I would say they don't have the same depth that it seems like these movements and shifts had in the historical period we're looking at. And so I, I would say that there probably are some issues here. You mentioned strategic communication and strategic action. These power players that are involved, let's say these the institutional players like governments and corporations, they're definitely using strategic action to influence individuals in society and that is having that's having a very big effect and it is very effective on the populace. And so it, there are some questions that I have with how this is going to play out. Obviously, I would like it to play out in a similar way where we have the Enlightenment period that everybody looks at as being this big positive thing that happened with society and progress started then into modern society. But there are some big issues that are still looming over all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And and Joshua, uh, if I can just plant a flag, what you said about strategic uh, action, and then I'll go... uh, 
let you uh, go on. Sure. This form of strategic action that we're witnessing, I would argue my point from earlier, this is kind of an extreme form of strategic action that is uniquely tied to the financial interests of massive corporations. And my question is, I wonder if the pairing of big data and strategic action, which is so dystopian yeah. in from, from this, this one perspective, if maybe it could be redirected yeah. towards something like expanding democracy rather than shrinking it, increasing the um, experience of individual freedom of autonomy. Um, and I think that's something we should explore. And also, uh, Joshua, what you said about the this relationship between the state and the markets is super fascinating. And as we start working through, you know, how much that we're seeing the government contracting work out to the markets, out to uh, private companies, and the kinds of dependencies that exist there, I'd be really interested to get your take on that uh, and to see uh, what, what we make of all that. Well, I think that's a good place to end the episode for this segment. We will pick up next time and do the second segment in this interview with Panoptic with Juan and Jason. And we will basically just pick up exactly where I left off. I'll give you a little brief summary sentence or two to catch you back up in case you forgot what we were discussing right before the cutoff. And we can lead back into that. So that's really all I have for you. I want to say thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for leaving reviews. I did see another review. I need to pull it up because I don't remember who it was or exactly what it was, but it was flattering. It was a good review. And thank you very much. I will figure out who you are and uh, give you a personalized thank you next time. I believe it was something related to Warhawk was your screen name. And that definitely stood out because uh, I definitely go against the typical Warhawk philosophy on here, but it was a flattering review and I thank you very much. So, with that, if you have not left a review or rating, please do so. That is very helpful. Thank you specifically to the people on Patreon that are subscribers on there and financially supporting the podcast. Again, remember that as I release these long interviews, I'm releasing them in their entirety to begin with on the Patreon page. So supporters on there can listen to the whole thing if they want. I don't know if you want to listen to a four-hour roughly long podcast all in a row, but hey, if you want to, you can. And if not, you can break it up however you wish, and that will all be available to you. And just keep in mind that if you are a patron signed up on Patreon, then each week that you don't technically get a new episode, since I'll... Uh, let's say that this interview gets broken up into four episodes, I'll release all four uh, minus the intros and outros that I haven't recorded yet, but I'll release the audio for the interview itself in its entirety sometime this week. I usually don't do it the exact same day, but when I can get it together and get it out there, I will. And then in the following three weeks, where technically the Patreon, the Patreon patrons will not be getting a new episode per se, I'll try to release some extra content where I've done interviews with other podcasters and where I've been on other shows or some other types of media. I've recently done some videos related to my homestead at my own house and a lot of the work and projects I've been doing here. I'll probably release those as well. 
And so just keep an eye out there because there is extra content there. Some of it will be exclusive to supporters and other content will just be more of a convenience factor and something that the average listener might not know about. If I only talked about it once on an episode and they missed that episode, then they'll probably never hear about it. And so uh, it'll all be there for you if you are a subscriber and you will have access to all that. So keep that in mind if you are choosing to listen to the interview in a different order than normal where you are listening to multiple segments and you're not waiting each week, you will have more content available on the Patreon page. The link for that is in the show notes for anybody else that wants to check it out. There's also a link to the website. And there is my email address, which uh, feel free to email me anytime you want with questions or comments or feedback or anything. And there is also a link to the Twitter page. I have a Twitter page for this podcast specifically related to the content I discuss on here. And that is a fun one to follow. So do that if you have not done so already. And with that, I guess I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah, thank you.